It's Revelations chapter 1, verse 9 to 20. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 to 20. And I will read that for us. And this is the word of God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatra and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write before, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. Here we go. It's good to be with you. It's good to worship with you today. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible. And technically, it would be more accurate to call it the letter of Revelation. You realize it's a letter that's written to seven churches that were in the Roman province of Asia. It's what we would call Western Turkey today. And as we saw last week, John uses the number seven throughout this letter as a shorthand. And whenever you see seven, it means the whole thing, the entire thing, the complete thing. So when he writes to seven churches, he wants us to understand that he is writing to the universal church, to all of God's people in every time and every place. So this is actually a letter that is written in that sense to you and me. He's writing to tell us that the church is right in the middle of a cosmic war that's taking place between God and evil. It's a war that is staged on planet Earth between both natural and supernatural persons, persons who are either loyal to God or who have turned their backs on him. And John tells us that if you are loyal to Jesus, you're going to find yourself at times at odds with those who are not. 
with people and nations that will try to pressure you to drop your loyalty, or at least to soften it a little bit, to compromise. And they'll do that either by threatening you with some kind of harm, it can be physical harm, social harm, financial harm, or by seducing you with what they can offer so that you can really enjoy life now if you'll just join them in what they're doing. Jesus calls his church not to give in to these pressures, but he also does calls us not to fight fire with fire, not to push back with the same kind of things that people use against you, but his call is to care just as much about the rest of this world as God does. While we faithfully hold on to him, even though you're going to have to take some hits for doing so. It's a really hard calling. And so the question that John is wrestling with here is, how do you and I live in a world that's antagonistic to us in such a way that reflects God's heart and his actions for it, even if it's only trying to hurt us? Now, part of the way that John answers that question in today's passage is by showing us three things. First, he shows us Jesus in all his blinding power. Second, he shows us what Jesus does with his power. And then third, he shows us the puzzle of Jesus' power. And I will unpack what I mean by that in a little bit. So let's dive in. First, John shows us Jesus in all his blinding, blinding power. What grabs your attention when you read through this passage? Clearly, it's Jesus. He is front and center. He fills the whole focus. But this is a Jesus like you've never encountered anywhere in the Gospels. You've never seen him like this before. And if you think more about what you're seeing, you realize that in some sense, it's a Jesus that you can't see. For instance, verse 16 tells us that Jesus holds seven stars in his right hand. But then in verse 17, one verse later, he lays his right hand on John. You think, wait, <laughs> what did he do with the stars? Did he just let go of them? He's no longer holding the stars. Is that a problem for the stars? Did they burn John? You have no idea. And then you start to realize, hmm, maybe I don't know how to read what I'm reading. Maybe it has different reading rules than what I'm used to. It's actually helpful to think down that road because otherwise, this Jesus that you're now looking at, he's become pretty grotesque to look at. He used to look like a regular human being who people wanted to be around, but now parts of him are hard, shiny metal. He has laser beams coming out of his eyes. He's got a sword sticking out of his mouth. And you think, why, why does John describe him like this? Is this what you're supposed to expect to see when you get to heaven? You see Jesus, some kind of cyborg being. Or are there different reading rules that you need to learn so that you can understand what it is that you're reading? Well, if you keep reading through the book, you discover that, yes, there are different rules so that you now interpret it like John intends you to. For instance, in chapter 12, John tells you that he is self-consciously describing things in signs that they're not literal depictions, but they are symbols, and he's using this symbol to communicate more than any literal picture could. And so he tells you in chapter 12, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And he tells you, this is not literal. This is a sign. It's a great sign. It's not something that you should take literally. It's something that you should understand symbolically. 
And as you think about it more, you realize, well, of course, it, it has to be symbolic. You, you can't take a photo, you can't draw a picture of a woman clothed with the sun. The more that you think about it, the more you realize, I, I, I don't know what that looks like. The more you try to picture that, the fuzzier the picture becomes. And that's because the picture is not meant to be taken literally. It's meant to be a sign. And that's because this is a certain kind of writing, certain kind of genre, that's called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature takes ideas and turns them into pictures. And it does that to make the idea visible. It gives them a form, it gives them a substance that shows you the various dimensions of the idea, and it makes the idea more concrete. So it feels a little less abstract, a little less philosophical. It gives you a picture of an idea so that you can see better how that idea then plays out in the real world. In that sense, as you read through Revelation, think of it as a picture book of ideas. And ask yourself as you're reading, what idea, what aspect of God, what aspect of the world am I being shown? Not laid out in an abstract formula kind, formulaic kind of way, but shown, pictured. For instance, thinking about Jesus again, when he holds seven stars in his hand and he tells you, verse 20, that the stars are not really burning gas balls, but they are angels that represent and serve the churches. What is he telling you? He's telling you that his authority and his power over the churches extends way beyond this earth. That it reaches all the way up to the heavens to where he controls not a couple angelic spirits, but the number seven again. He controls the entire heavenly host. And he's telling you in a picture that yes, powers on earth may try to mess with his church, but his infinite cosmic power is so far beyond their limited earthbound version that it's silly to even try to compare the two. It'd be sillier even to mess with those that this Jesus loves. Or think about the sword that comes out from his mouth. It's a clear reference to passages like Isaiah 49.2 where God makes his servant's mouth like a sharpened sword. It's a weapon weapon like the one that you find the Davidic king wielding in Isaiah 11:4, where he uses the rod of his mouth to strike the earth. These are images again, Old Testament pictures, images that tell you that Jesus will judge the world and his church by what he says. What other idea pictures do you see here? Verse 13, he's wearing a long robe with a gold sash. It's a reference to him being dressed like a king, and or a priest, but it's a kingly priest who's what? Who's pure. It's a golden sash. The white hair of his head, verse 14, tells you again not only of his purity, his holiness, but also of his wisdom. His eyes are flaming. They see what really is. They see below the surface. They see through the facade. They're searching. They're piercing. Verse 15, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a fire. Again, you've got that sense of purity just enveloping every part of him. This time, his holiness is connected to the metal that you would use for war-making equipment. And the, so the sense here is that he has the ability to crush any opponent 
and that when he does, he does so righteously with justice. So stepping back from this picture, you're supposed to take in that this is the most supreme judge, the highest ruler over the entire universe, that he's over all the powers and nations on heaven and on earth, and that this is what you have to understand about him. And you're given this picture, you have to understand this, because it's different from the first time that he came to earth with all of the same power and glory veiled. He came that first time humbly. Why? So that we could see his heart for us. So that we could see that he wasn't here to destroy, to ruin, to set himself up as some kind of cruel overlord, but that he was here for us, to help us. He came veiled so that the disciples could have a chance of believing him when he told them, John 15, I have called you friends. If he showed up on earth the first time, like John sees him here, there is no way that anyone would ever think of him as a friend. But now that you know his heart for you, you also have to see this side of him, this picture of his glory. Because yes, he is your friend, but let me say it this way, he is not your buddy. He's not someone who's just nice to have around, but someone that you don't have to take too seriously. He's not your buddy. He's not someone you take casually, somebody you treat lightly, somebody you pencil into your schedule when it happens to fit your world, someone who's kind of interesting, but someone you can, you can take or leave, someone who gives you good advice for you to consider, but lets you decide how seriously to take him, someone who will always be there for you, but someone that you can take for granted. He's not your buddy. Jesus does want a deep, intimate relationship with you. He's done everything necessary to make that relationship possible, but he is not inviting you into a relationship with a peer, with someone who has no claim on your life, someone who won't ever make any demands of you. You can see how friendly Jesus really is. You watch him on earth, sit down, he eats with people, he drinks with them, talks with them, shares their lives with them. He's one of us. He's very friendly, enjoys people, and yet, at the same time, he's not our pal. He is the risen Lord of glory, who when he shows his glory to John, John who was one of his closely earth, closest earthly friends, when John sees Jesus unveiled, verse 17, he falls at Jesus' feet as though dead. This is not a sign of reverence. Instead, he's knocked off his feet. He is laid out. You and I need to have a sense of him being this kind of king, this big, this overwhelming, this powerful. And if I can confess some of my sins to you this morning, this section is really hard for me to work through because I'm not sure that I have learned to see him like this. I know I haven't. Remember a time many years ago when I first started to get a glimpse of how much bigger God is than anything or anyone else. And how seeing him in that way gave me more confidence than to trust him in what he was doing in my life when things were hard. It gave, made me less fearful. And it gave me more confidence that what he was doing in the world really would turn out the way that he wanted it to. But in reflecting on this passage, I realized that my vision of God and his glory, his power, is not even close to what he pictures here. And to be honest with you, my 
understanding of his glory and his power has not grown as much as I've grown in understanding other things about him. And so, for instance, I have grown over the years in seeing how imminent he is, how close and near to us he is, but I've not grown as much in seeing how transcendent he is, in seeing how exalted he is in his royal dignity, how he exercises absolute control and authority in his creation and over everything in his creation. And because I've not grown in seeing that aspect of him, it means that I don't trust him like I could. I don't listen to him like I should. I'm tempted to take him a little lighter in my own life, to make hearing his word optional, to feel like obeying him is little optional. You know, like, it'd be a good thing if I did, but it's not the end of the world if I don't. In other words, because I've not seen how great and exalted he is, I am tempted to compromise personally. And I'm tempted to feel discouraged as I look around at this rest, the rest of this world, at how many attacks there are on him and on his, in, and his ways, and how weak his church is in responding to them, and I'm tempted to be discouraged at that. And I need to grow here. I need to keep seeing him a little bit more like he is. I need to see him bigger, both for my own holiness and also so that I will risk obeying him even when it's not popular to do so. If you're taking Jesus too lightly, let me invite you to join me in repenting and in asking this Jesus to show you more of his glory to take his incredible power that he has and use some of it to open your eyes so that you can see him as he is, to make these words that come from his mouth come alive inside of you. That's point one. You need to see this exalted aspect of Jesus. You need to see him a little bit more like he really is. But why would you think he'd be willing to, do, to show himself to you, especially if, like me, you've taken him too lightly? It's because, point two, you look at how he uses his power. You look at what he does with this exalted supremacy, how he uses it to help his people. Notice that even though Jesus fills center stage in this passage, that we don't come to, upon him first. Verse 10, John hears a loud voice behind him, telling him to write what he sees and to send it to the churches. But when John turns to look, verse 12, to see this voice that's speaking to him, the first thing that he sees, it's not the voice, the first thing he sees are seven golden lampstands. And it's only after seeing them that, verse 13, he sees one, like a son of man, in the midst of the lampstands. Now at that moment, we don't know what the lampstands are, but Jesus unpacks that for us in verse 20 and tells us that they are the seven churches that he's talking to. And so we don't encounter this incredible, mind-blowing Jesus in an isolated context, just him all by himself standing there so that we can gaze at him and observe him. Instead, we encounter him in the context of being with his churches. Again, by understanding how John is using the number seven, we encounter him in the context of his entire church, in the context of his people, in the middle of his people. We see him, in other words, in all of his glory, as he's engaged with his people. He's in the midst of them, verse 13, and he appears as a priest. 
This image takes us back into the Old Testament where there was a lampstand, one in the tabernacle, later in the temple. And it was a lampstand that the priest tended to so that it would shine brightly. And so what we're meant to understand here, the picture, is that Jesus, in all of his power and glory, uses that power on behalf of his church, tending to her so that she shines as brightly as she can. We're going to hear a little bit more about how he does that in chapters 2 and 3, how he does that by counseling her, by speaking truthfully to her, that he rebukes her when she strays, that he encourages her when she's faithful. She's his witness to this world and of what he's like, of what he's done, but he doesn't leave her to do that witness work all by herself. Instead, in order to carry out her work of witness effectively, he tends to her personally. He does that so that she can be the partner to him in the work that he longs for her to do. So when you have not seen him accurately, or when you are afraid that you won't be able to serve him well or do what he's given you to do, remember what he is doing. That he attends to his church, which means he tends to you. And that he does so personally doing for you what you need so that you can effectively carry out what he's given you to do. But what about when you're afraid of him? When you know that you've let him down? That you have not seen him or related to him the way that you should? When you're nervous at some point about seeing him in the future, afraid that that's going to be terrifying? Well, think here about the first thing that you see him do with John. John can't help himself. He sees Jesus in all his glory and power, and John immediately faints, drops to the ground as though dead, loses all ability to control himself, which should sober us. There's an arrogance to us as human beings, especially in the modern age. We are what we're used to being alive, to moving and breathing under our our own power. We take that for granted. We live in a society that celebrates our personal rights and our autonomy, and so both by nature and by training, it rarely occurs to us to think about where the power comes from that lets us control our own life. We just assume that it comes from ourselves. We forget it's not something we gave to ourselves. We forget that any life or control over life is something that's been gifted to us, that our personal power is derivative, that it comes from outside of ourselves, from a greater power. John here comes face to face with that power, and his reaction, his response, is to lose his power, to lose complete control of all of his faculties. And Jesus' response to him in that moment is what? It's to take all of his power and extend himself to John, to use his power to help to comfort. Verse 7, he laid his right hand on John and he said, fear not. Very first thing that he says to John. He gives John back his abilities. John is no longer as though he were dead. He can feel Jesus's touch. He can see what Jesus is doing. He can hear his voice. You realize Jesus is not appearing to terrify John. He does want John, and you and me, to see how powerful he is, but his power is supposed to inspire confidence in us, not terror. And you learn that when Jesus shows you how he uses this overwhelming power 
that he uses it to help people, not to hurt them. When you're afraid that you've let him down, you can trust him to treat you well, to pick you up, as it were, and to tell you not to be afraid. And then Jesus gives John the reason why John should not fear. He continues, verse 17, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Why should John not fear? Why should you and I not fear? Because Jesus is the living one. He died, but that death was not the last word on him. Instead, he's alive forevermore. Our confidence in life, our ability not to fear, is based on his resurrection. Last week we heard that he's freed us from our sins by his blood, that he set us free from evil and the control of evil by dying for us. Here he's telling us that there's more. The rising from the dead is also important, that that also sets us free, that it sets us free from fear. Fear of facing powers and things in life that are bigger than what we control. You ever talk to someone who's fearful? Fearful of many things. Maybe they're scared that they might catch a disease, be fired from their job, get in a car accident, have their child hate them because of how they've parented. If you've talked to someone like that, if you are someone like that, you know that fear is debilitating. It focuses you down on this thing that could go wrong, and then you see all of life through the lens of this thing. And then you also start to see what might happen next after this thing. And so the disease progresses, and you can no longer function like you once did. Or you're fired, and there are no decent jobs out there, and you slowly run out of money. The accident disables you. Your child resents you, wants nothing to do with you. Fear teaches you to think all the time about what might go wrong in your world. But fear doesn't let you stand still. It doesn't stay at the level of that first wrong thing. It keeps on going. And so it thinks about what might happen wrong after the thing happened that was wrong. And it keeps going down, moving in this same direction from one wrong thing to the next to the next to the next to the next until you get to the worst possible scenario. So you catch the disease, you succumb to it, you waste away and die. You lose your job, can't get another, your savings dries up, you can't take care of yourself anymore, you're out on the streets, and you die. You get in an accident, you end up hurt, permanently disabled, bleeding out, till you die. Your children don't like how you parented, and so they leave. They don't call, they don't come visit, they cut you off, they treat you as if you had died. Fear pushes you in that direction. It never goes the other way. And it pushes you to worse and worse conclusions until it ends up with you losing your life, often miserable and alone, and it paralyzes you. You can't imagine surviving any of those things. Do you know you can't talk someone out of that kind of fear? You can't say to them, look, None of that's happened. You're just making things up. Stop thinking so negatively. Just, you know, be happy. Think positive thoughts instead. Doesn't work that way. Fear always comes back and says, but it might. It might happen. 
And if it does, there is nothing that you can do to stop it. Trying to talk yourself out of fear doesn't work. So what does? It's what Jesus offers. That because he now holds the keys of death, that there is nothing that can happen to you that he can't undo. Let all the ugliness of this world take its best shot at you. Let it go all the way and kill you. Let it do its worst. And none of it will stop his plan for you and for the rest of his people to be with him forever. And when you are there with him, he will wipe away every tear you've ever had. And there won't be any more. Any, there won't be any more. There won't be a single thing that happens to you here, including death and all the grief and loss that comes with it. Not a single thing will happen to you here that will ruin a single moment of your eternal happiness. Jesus has taken the very worst thing that can happen, you and everyone else that you love dying, he's taken the very worst thing off the table because he holds the keys to death. So that even if, and here I think maybe we should say when, the worst does happen when you die. It doesn't end your life. This is why you can look a frightening world in the face, one that is antagonistic to God, to God and to his people, and you can step boldly into other people's lives to bring God's perspective into their worlds by what you say and what you do. This is what frees you from worrying about how you'll be received. What can someone do to you now? Dislike you? because of what you said or did? They might, but you're going to escape death because Jesus holds the keys to death. Their dislike of you can't stop him from redeeming every part of your life and then giving you eternal life. What else can someone do? Cancel you? They could, but that won't ruin your life. Because your life is not judged by what you can and cannot do on this planet. Your life is judged by what God opens up for you for eternity. What else can they do? Confiscate your property? Take your life? That's not only possible, it's happened to countless numbers of our brothers and sisters throughout time around the world. And they are still part of God's kingdom. They are Jesus' friends now alive. Death was not the end for them. It was what? It was the doorway into a greater life than they ever had before. It's a life that only gets better with time. They still have an incredible future that no one can take away from them because Jesus, this blindingly glorious one, took the unlimited power that he has and he used it to overcome death for half-hearted, fearful people who don't see him as he really is. And what's true of you as an individual is even more true for us as his church as a whole. There is nothing that the world can do that can threaten or derail God's plans for his people. And that's crucial. You have to remember the context here. We're not simply talking about the church as she relates to Christ. We're talking about the church as she lives out her relationship with Christ on this planet in front of everyone else, including those who don't like her very much. She's the lampstand, 
that sheds light into this world so that people can see God and see what he's like. She's made up of people who testify to how God uses his power in their lives to shepherd them, to console them, and to guarantee them a future that nothing on this earth can touch. That's point two. That's how Jesus uses his power. Which leads us to point three, the puzzle of Jesus' power. And I'm calling it a puzzle because the way that God engages power is very different from how our world does. It's puzzling to us. How does our world think about power? How do people and organizations think about power? That's pretty basic. If you've got it, use it. Display it in some way so that everybody knows how much power you have and what you can do with it. Display it so that everyone knows that at least in this area, whatever this area is, that at least in this area, you're in charge. Display it and then exercise it. Either compel others to agree with you or make them do what you want them to do. It's how the world uses power. God has a very different way of thinking about power. We've already noted that since everything starts with him, he's the one from whom all power comes. He is the most powerful being in or out of this universe. But that's not how he introduced himself when he came the first time to this planet. That's because he has a different goal. He's going to end up with a world that works exactly the way that he thinks is best, but he's looking for partners to share in that world with him. We saw last week that he has made us a kingdom, priests to serve his God and Father. He's looking for partners who will work alongside of him, not for servants who cower at his feet. He wants to make us priests, not peasants. And so he doesn't come to us with naked power to terrify us into groveling. He comes veiled. So we get to know him, get to know his heart. And that means his kingdom comes with an invitation means he does not start by showing his power. That's the puzzle of power. He has it all. He does not put it on display. But that means then, in a world that does not embrace God or the way that he uses power, that you can be, expect to be on the receiving end of this world's power. And John already has been. He tells you, verse 9, that he was on the island of Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, church history tells us that he was exiled there, that he'd been teaching about Christ, been teaching about the kingdom, and that the powers who were in charge put an end to it. They banished him to this small, barely populated island. And that's why John strings together three things. He starts verse 9 by saying, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, you have three thes there. But in Greek, there's only one direct article in that sentence, only one the. And it's used in such a way that it ties these three nouns together. So they actually come as a unit. They come as a package deal. Tribulation, kingdom, endurance. They all go together in this world. So if Jesus has rescued you from your sins, then you are now a partner in his kingdom. You are a priest of God. Someone who lives in such a way that shines, that lets others see God through you, but that will bring you tribulation. It's tied to being a partner in the kingdom. It'll bring you persecution. 
and you will have to then patiently endure it. You can't avoid it. Kingdom, tribulation, endurance, they come together. And I'm saying you here because John includes you and me along with himself. He doesn't say, I'm the apostle, I'm in charge. Here's what I have to say. He says, I'm your brother, your partner in the tribulation kingdom endurance that are in Jesus. He says that we are partners with him in having to patiently endure persecution. That even though we are priests of God, we are not highly valued on this planet. Which makes sense, right? This is how Jesus lived on earth. There was a mismatch between his appearance and the reality of his power. It's a mismatch that reached its peak on the cross. That was the most misunderstood moment in history. See, if you're ending your life on a cross, it means what? It means that your bid for power, your bid to do what you wanted to do in the way that you wanted to do it, when you wanted to do it, your bid to do that, to live the kind of life you wanted, has failed. If you're ending life on a cross, it means that someone or something else is stronger, and that other is so strong that it's not only stopped you from what you were doing, it's about to stop you from ever doing anything ever again. It has power not only over your past, it has power over your future. That's how Rome thought. That when power is used effectively, it subjugates all opposition and it crushes anyone who refuses to submit. And so hanging and dying on a cross says what? It says that you are weak, powerless, ineffective. That's the external appearance that Jesus had that Friday afternoon a couple thousand years ago on a cross outside Jerusalem. The reality, however, was very different because that was the moment when Jesus used the immense power that he had to successfully reverse all of human history. He had a plan to use his power to defeat not Rome, it's way too small an enemy, but death. And so he went through death to overpower death. He did that by dealing with our sin because as bad as death is, it's an effect of something that's much worse. Jesus didn't simply deal with the effect with death, but he dealt with the cause, with the sin that caused death. And he dealt with that at the cost of his own life. So what looks like a great defeat is actually the greatest reversal of all time. The reality of what he was doing and the appearance of what was happening could not have been more different. He did not use his power to save his own life, to crush his opponents. He veiled his power, wrapped it in a body of flesh and blood in order to save his people. And those people, you and I, now live our lives with the same mismatch between reality and appearance. We are priests of God. That's the reality partners with God in his kingdom, partners who rule alongside him in his kingdom right now, partners who in the eyes of this world look pretty weak, pretty powerless from the outside, ineffective even. That's the appearance. We're not very impressive. 
The church in the world is not well thought of. We don't have lots of influence. We don't own our own nation. We can do more. We can bring it home renewal. We don't own our own building. Relatively small group of people in this auditorium. Not a very large group. Most of us are pretty worn out most of the time from work, from family. We're tired. We're not super involved, invested in our communities. We look weak, powerless, ineffective. But you would be foolish to judge us by our appearance. Just like you would be to judge Jesus by his, because our appearance does not correspond with reality. The least of God's people, the weakest, frailest one of us in this room, is far more substantial and more powerful than the mightiest nation that has ever been. You need to let that sink in. Some of you are saying, there's no way that, that it's not sinking in because I can't believe that. It's true. Every nation on this earth will end. Everyone that rises falls. Everyone that conquers on this earth fails. Not one of them will carry a shred of power or influence into the next life, but you, your life will last forever. You're going to be doing things in the future to serve our God while the nations are far distant memories, long, long forgotten. To quote C.S. Lewis, nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, unquote. The person who judges you and your effectiveness by what they see, the person who judges renewal by what they see, is a fool. And the reason for that is because Jesus backs you. He tends to you. He backs his church, tends to his church, in a way that he does not back the nations or any earthly power. And this is where you and I have to fight the fight of faith. To see ourselves as Jesus sees us and not as the rest of the world does. And then having confidence in what he is doing, then we need to shine brightly. We need to take our experience of Jesus using his power for us and use what power we have then for others. We need to experience him shepherding us with his words, rebuking us, encouraging us, and then we need to mimic him in how we talk to others, to our friends, to our parents, our spouses, our children. And we need to be more concerned that we sound like the God who speaks to us than we are with whether or not people want to hear what we have to say. We need to shepherd others like we ourselves have been shepherded. We need to look for those who live in fear, care about them in their fear, and point them to someone who can help them overcome their fears, like Jesus has cared for us in our fear. And we need to look for those who still feel the effects of sin, we need to enter into their worlds to help relieve the pain they experience like Jesus has entered into our world and taken away the worst effect of sin, of dying and being separated from him. 
it is too easy to see how strong and powerful the larger world is. It is too easy to see our failures and the sin struggles of the church, and it's too easy to say, yeah, we don't have anything to offer. We're just small and weak. That may be the appearance. It is not the reality. Because we have this amazing Jesus who uses his unbelievable power to shepherd us, to console us, to guarantee our future. See him for who he is. See how he uses his power. And you will find yourself entering more and more into the reality of what it means to serve him as a brightly shining priest in his kingdom. Lord Jesus, open our eyes. We have to see you. Lord, you didn't write this to hide yourself. You wrote it to reveal yourself. Lord, this is not a book of hidden mysteries that's impenetrable. Lord, it's clear. Please, with that sword that comes out of your mouth, use your words to bring that reality into our lives so that it becomes our experience. Lord, so that we not just see you, but we bow down before you, we worship you, we love you, we serve you. We take seriously what you've made us to be. In Jesus' name.